From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode of Work and Life is Cal Newport, who's a professor of computer science at Georgetown University, an MIT PhD, and the author of Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Cal studies the theoretical foundations of our digital age and in this book writes about what we can do to deal with and manage and harness the power of these technologies on our work and in other parts of our lives. He argues that focus is the new IQ. And in our conversation, we talk about why people who cultivate their ability to concentrate without distraction will thrive. And Cal offers his four really useful guidelines for cultivating deep work in our lives and how it's necessary and possible to train your brain to focus. And finally, what you can do to open up a dialogue about creating the conditions for successful deep work in your workplace. Cal, welcome to Work and Life. Hi, Stu. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So, uh, Cal, if you could... uh, Start us off here. We distraction is a huge topic on this show. It is uh, causing all kinds of difficulties and health problems and productivity issues for so many different people. What you've done is to kind of flip the the question and look for ways that we can find focus, deep focus. So, give us a brief uh, overview. What is it that you have discovered? This thing that you call deep work. Right. And I think the point you just made uh, is a great one, is that we we spend so much time worrying about distraction that we don't spend enough time talking about what's so good about its opposite. And that's what I call deep work, mm-hmm. which is an activity I define to be when you focus without distraction for a significant amount of time on a cognitively demanding task. And the simple summary is that this tool deep work is incredibly valuable in knowledge work, but almost no individuals and no organizations are actually focusing on it. So I see that, and I think this is a great opportunity. If you're one of the few who actually uh, focuses on building their ability to apply deep work, so if you prioritize focusing without distraction for significant amounts of time on cognitively demanding tasks as being at the core of your work life or at the core of your organization, I think there's huge advantage to be gained. Competitive advantage is what you're getting at. Competitive. This is an economic opportunity. It's something that's becoming more valuable, the skill, at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare. I don't know anyone who doesn't need to be able to develop this skill, frankly, because I, uh, in my work, hear people complaining about this all the time, and they've tried 
uh, various methods, and some quite successful, and some probably consistent with what it is that you've discovered in the four rules for how to make deep work happen, which I want to get to in just a minute. But before we do, let me ask you to clarify. When you said a significant amount of time, can you quantify that, please? Well, it's got to be more than an hour, probably oh. at least 90 minutes before before you're getting the, the full uh, benefits of depth. All right. So that means doing one thing for at least 90 minutes? Yeah, that's right. One cognitively demanding task. And uh, I have a zero tolerance policy for distraction. It doesn't work even if you just quickly glance at your inbox every once in a while. Even that glance is going to uh, really impair the amount of, of work and quality you're able to produce. Right, because we know, and we've talked a lot about this on this show, that there is no such thing as multitasking. When you switch, there's a cost to switching from one task to the other. Even a quick glance at something like an email inbox Mm -hmm. leaves a cognitive residue, which can actually create a relatively significant cognitive uh, impairment for quite a long time to follow. So, So really the worst thing you could do if you're trying to really use your minus maximum limit would be what almost everyone does, which is let me just take a quick glance at the phone or the web, or my email every 10 to 15 minutes. That's like working with a significant cognitive handicap. Because there's a residue, right, of uh, what it is that you are switching over to look at. Yeah, the actual the, the term that comes out of the studies on this is cognitive residue. That's what they, they actually right. call it. It's a great term, too, because it really helps you to see and envi- or envision the idea that, yeah, it's sticky. When you go from one thing to the other, there's no on-off switch, there is something there that resides that you've got to somehow deal with, even though you're not conscious of it. So better not to even get a little peek of what's coming up on your email screen. The quickest of glances can actually be the worst because your mind says, well, wait a second. I just saw a ton of stuff that we are going to have to do. I got to pay attention to this. You can try to bring my attention back to that really hard memo you're writing or computer code you're writing. But no, no, we're going to we're going to churn on this. You're going to move to the next task, and that's going to kill your focus. Yeah, exactly. All right, so tell us, Cal, what are the the guidelines that you've developed from your research about how to create deep work in your life? Yeah, I broke it down in, into four guidelines. Uh, so the first, I I call the rule, work deeply. And at a high level, what this means is you actually have to be relatively aggressive about uh, putting aside and protecting time for deep work, um, having rituals and routines that surround your deep work to make it as effective as possible, uh, these type of elements. The second rule is to embrace boredom, which actually captures a point which I think is important, which is that deep work is actually a very hard skill to get good at. We all assume we know how to focus. It's just a matter of finding time. But actually, that's a practice skill. And if you want to be serious about using deep work to really get ahead, you're going to have to get serious about actually training your ability to focus. Uh, My third rule is is controversially titled, it turns out. Uh, It's called uh, Quit Social Media. Uh, And this is really about how you have to be, if you want to be serious about your ability to focus and get all the benefits that can give you, you have to become much more selective about what you let into your attention landscape. And then the final rule, drain your shallows, means uh, you have to be careful about all of the non-deep work obligations on your plate, eliminate a lot more than most people do, and be much more efficient about what remains. Which do you find people struggle with the most, Cal? Uh, Well, people think they're going to struggle most with the the quit social media. uh, But as as someone who's never had a social media account, I can tell you nothing bad happens. And people who do cut back figure out that that is actually the case. Um, I think we're we're people... But Cal, let me just jump in here. You've heard of FOMO? 
I have heard of it. Okay. So, do I'll, you not suffer from FOMO? Uh, Fear I of don't. missing out? Everybody knows that. <laughs> I guess I miss out a lot, and, and I don't realize it. <laughs> Probably the ah, reality. So you're blissfully ignorant. I guess so. I, I mean, to me, it's important to recognize and, and not to, to divert too much about this. But, okay. uh, you know, the companies that provide these social media platforms um, have done a very good job of marketing this technology as somehow being at the cornerstone of civic life in the 21st century. Mm. Um, but the reality is that they're media companies that sell advertisements and hire people who are very highly trained at figuring out how to grab and distract as much of your attention as possible. So I think like a, someone, a serious athlete, is going to be very careful about what they eat. Uh, I think someone who is a serious mental athlete, someone who makes a living using their mind to do skilled labor, should at least be wary about uh, voluntarily and regularly using services that are really meant to make them worse at that type of work. That's a great way to put it. Very persuasive. All right, so how do you deal with the people who are addicted to social media or who feel it's necessary, perhaps because of FOMO or for other reasons, how do you help them or what guidelines do you have for how to how to quit? Because that seems like a daunting task, of, especially for certain people in certain industries who like rely on feeds in social media. Yeah, and there are certainly people uh, for what social media makes sense. So what I actually presented was a new way to make the decision about whether or not you should use these different tools. Okay. And actually, my inspiration uh, for this process might be unexpected. I went and I talked to a farmer. Mm-hmm. And the way I thought about it was, uh, you know, farmers uh, use tools, um, but they have to be very selective, right? There's the, they, they only have so much money, and they're, they're very careful. I, I, the farmers I've known have been very careful about tool selection. So I sat down with a farmer and said, walk me through how you decide which tools you use in your life and which tools you don't. And at the, at the crux of his decision-making process was this idea that, well, of course, every tool has some benefits. It, it wouldn't be offered for sale if it didn't have some benefits. But I'm very careful to only bring into my professional life the tools that are going to have positive benefits that substantially weigh out the cost. And I think that's the same way that people should think about tools like social media. Of course, they have benefits, and Mm -hmm. there's some things you might miss. But the question is, uh, do these tools bring substantial benefits to the things you care about most that substantially also outweigh the negatives they have on crabbing your time and attention? And I think for some people, the answer is yes. But for many more people than we see today, the answer really would be no. That it it actually pays for them to quit. Uh, and, and what you really need to do is that process of thinking through, is this a tool that's helping me? Exactly. Not does it have any benefit, but uh, do the benefits it have substantially benefit the things that I find most important in my professional and personal life? Right. So um, most people probably tell you, oh, I couldn't do that, Right. Yeah, so what I suggest is uh, quit for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And after 30 days, you have to ask yourself two questions. One, uh, was your life sub- uh, uh, substantially impoverished, right? Would you find yourself that you were missing out on things, that you, were, you had a hard time with your professional and personal life? And two, did anyone else notice or care? Because I think part of the, the loop of self-regard that keeps people connected to social media is you begin to develop this idea that, well, I have this audience out there, and you know they need to hear what I have to say. So it can be a, a mm-hmm. usefully humbling experience to realize that this 30-day experience. <laughs> Nobody cares. No one noticed that you weren't sending out your, your insightful tweets. Mm. Or maybe even a shorter spell to do a trial. You know, part of my work is to help people design intelligent experiments 
for about a month or less that are intended to make things better in the four different parts of their lives, work, home, community, and the private self of mind, body, and spirit. And I call these four-way wins. And people do experiments like this a lot, and they look to see where is indeed the benefit uh, in each of the different parts of their lives by shutting down. And next month, I'm going to have these Wharton MBA students do a digital detox for a day where they're going to shut down all their systems and see what happens when they discover uh, the world beyond their screens. Uh, and and what I find is that most people feel uh, liberated by that process. Is that what you have found? I have, and and that's why I was I was hinting before that most people think that quit social media is going to be the hardest hmm. chapter or rule in this book. But a lot of people have that same experience. This is Stu Friedman. You're listening to Work and Life. And in the first part of my conversation with Cal Newport, we talked about what it means to work deeply. The idea of cognitive residue and the cost of switching tasks and how to quit social media and keep only the tools you really need and discard the rest. In the next part of the conversation, we talk about why embracing boredom is necessary for training your brain to conduct deep work, determining your optimal deep-to-shallow ratio, and how to create a conversation about the conditions that support deep work in your office, your business, wherever it is that you do your work. Let's talk about embracing boredom. What does that take? Yeah, so this is where people actually have the trouble. Uh, And the underlying idea here is that the ability to really focus and get the full advantage of deep work is something that you have to train, that uh, if you haven't trained your mind to concentrate, you're going to have a hard time, even if you're able to clear off your schedule, you're going to have a hard time actually reaching the level of concentration that allows deep work to be this tool that provides fantastic productivity. So I argue that most people actually have to train their mind just like an athlete would train Mm -hmm. a muscle uh, to prepare to do deep work. And a big part of that training is you need to be worried about uh, the lack of boredom in your life. And I'm talking even outside of work. So if Worried about the lack of boredom. Lack of boredom. So So what the goal here is boredom. Exactly. So the reason I'm asking you to embrace boredom is because if you live your life in such a way that at the slightest hint of boredom, that is the slightest lack of novel stimuli, you whip out a phone and immediately start looking at something that's a little bit entertaining. If that's how you live your life, uh, you're basically weakening your executive center's ability when it comes time to focus to remain focused. So to actually embrace boredom, to reteach your mind that it's okay to not have novel stimuli, to have it be used to the state of being some without novel stimuli, means when it's time to sit down and work and work deeply, you're going to be much better at it. Interesting. So you have to condition your your mind so that you're kind of at rest. Is that it? Well, the way I think about it, it's like you have uh, the analogy is this part of your executive center was like a bouncer at the nightclub of your attention. Um, If you just let uh, everything in there, uh, I'm a little bored, let me get a little distraction, let me get a little distraction, you're you're weakening the authority of that bouncer. So it's very hard when you really do want to lock those doors to actually do it. So what you do out of work has an impact on your ability to work deeply in work. So people who take deep work seriously 
also take boredom seriously. They're, they're happy to have long periods of time where there's not a lot of excitement or novel stimuli coming. They're able to take long walks. They'll, they'll go places without their phone. They'll even sort of horror, horror, stand in a line and just stand in the line. And it, it might seem like, why would we want to do it? But actually, this is like cognitive calisthenics when it comes to your ability to focus. The first rule, work deeply, means basically bounding time for you to be able to focus, right? Yeah, uh, putting aside time, how you schedule that time into your schedule, and, and what you do surrounding that time to get the most out of it, all those type of factors are involved there. So what have you found as the greatest challenge that people face in, in uh, being aggressive about establishing those rituals and boundaries that enable you to have that hour, hour and a half, two hours of undistracted activity on one thing? People sometimes feel guilty about protecting that time. And so when other uh, opportunities come up, maybe a meeting, can you do this meeting, can you jump on this call, they say yes, because that seems more concrete, and they feel bad about turning it on, uh, turning that down. Right. They feel guilty. They feel guilty, and it also, uh, deep work is not busyness in a publicly visible manner. So if you if you take the phone call, if you go to a meeting, people see you doing it, you're doing work, look, I'm doing stuff, I'm here, I'm busy. Deep work is a very sort of private solo endeavor. You sort of don't get immediate credit for it. But I think it's important to emphasize that we have this backwards. So as we're in this age of increasing automation and outsourcing, the jobs that, that survive, the jobs that are going to remain, become increasingly complicated and increasingly cognitively demanding. That's mm-hmm. where the pressures are in the job world. Mm-hmm. But we often get this backwards, and we think about uh, the stuff that we can actually do to think really hard, to put our skills at their highest level, to apply it at work, to work deeply, the stuff that we can do and that's valuable. We see that as something uh, that might be nice, but but not for now, and we define real work to be all of the other stuff we do, which is mainly talking about work. We spend all of our time sending emails and going to meetings and hopping on calls and putting PowerPoint slides together, and we really have that backwards. Uh, in, in today's economy, it's the deep work that matters. It's the deep work that creates massive amounts of value, and it can't be automated, it can't be outsourced. Um, and yet, we spend by far the vast majority of our time, and by we I mean the average knowledge worker, on the shallow tasks that would be mm-hmm. easily uh, replicated. We, we act like human network routers instead of actually <laughs> sitting there and doing the deep thinking that's it's our one competitive advantage. So people do have a hard time protecting this time and saying no to the other things. Yes. But I think we have that completely backwards. So how do you, how do you get over that? Because the pressures are enormous to be responsive and immediately responsive to your online and, let's face it, your face-to-face in-person world. People want your attention. So how do you how do you bound it and protect it? Well, there's two cases. So if if you're not in a big organization, if you don't have a boss, so you have control over what's in your life, uh, be less connected, be less responsive. Just you push things to the side, prioritize deep work, and try to fit as much of the other stuff as you can uh, as it fits. People who don't have bosses sometimes overestimate or uh, how much connectivity they have to be or how important these mm-hmm. distracted tasks are. Uh, you know, I recently wrote this article that contrasted two popular bloggers and podcasters that were both having real trouble with the amount of email coming in through their websites. The first blogger hired a high-end executive assistant who works with them full-time just to help him keep up with the email. That was his solution. Uh, the other sort of high-powered blogger took his email address off the website and said, you can write me a letter if you want to contact me. 
Hmm. And it turned out nothing bad happened when he did that. Uh, Nothing happened to his traffic, nothing happened to his revenue, but suddenly he had massive more time available to actually write better content, and it was good for his business. So I think in a lot of cases... We think we need to be really connected. We need to be doing these emails. We need to be saying yes to everything. Uh, But the reality is if we ran the type of experiments uh, you recommend, you Mm -hmm. would realize, wait a second, maybe 80, 90 percent of the stuff that's eating up my attention is nice but not that important. Well, what if your, your manager isn't down with the deep work plan? Yeah, so this is the other case. And, you know, what I recommend here is uh, actually you need to open a dialogue about deep work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I have this suggestion that you actually talk to your boss or manager Mm -hmm. about what your ideal deep to shallow work ratio should be. Deep to shallow ratio. Exactly. That's a great concept. I'm here 40 hours. Uh, I measure my time very carefully. What should I be aiming for? And you, you open up a conversation when you do this. Uh, but now once mm-hmm. you, you have this agreement with a, a boss or a manager, you have a platform from which you can actually make stronger decisions and say, you know what, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn down this meeting or I'm not here is because we're way off the ratio you said I should be, I should be meeting. I only got two hours of deep work. That's not producing value for this company. You, know, you don't need me sending emails. You need me actually doing what I do best. Uh, so how can we get more time? And I think the, the meta point that's important here is that there's, there's interesting research, such as the work of the Harvard Business School professor Leslie Perlow at Boston Consulting Group, that says with these type of issues, once you actually open up a dialogue, a regular dialogue about these type of issues, well, deep work is important to me, I'm getting none done, it can uncover lots of different cultural things at your company that really aren't that important uh, that, you, that the company can move past or your group or team can get past. That once you start talking about these things, it actually enables changes to the culture that might have otherwise seemed sort of hopelessly entrenched. Exactly. And indeed, that's a part of the training that I do with uh, my students in, in this program that I've been doing for almost 20 years now. After identifying what matters most to you and what you know the projects and people that matter most, you engage in dialogue with the key people in your life right. about what's important to them and important to you, including the sort of terms of engagement and and your you know expectations of responsiveness. And it's it's all about the those conversations because there's all kinds of assumptions that we make about uh, what other people need from us with respect to availability and response times, and often they're wrong. Yeah. I mean, a, a concept that, that I really like from Leslie's research was she called it the cycle of connectivity. But she, she studied at, at this consulting group yes. uh, how the culture of constant email connectivity arose. And what, mm-hmm. what it turned out was that uh, no one actually ever sat down and said this would be good. And therefore, we all need to do this. This is good for business. It actually arose from this ad hoc cycle that she documents uh, that that was not something that was a process aimed at making the the company more profitable. It was Mm -hmm. not a process that someone designed so that they would be uh, better serve their clients. It was just something that just emerged in an ad hoc fashion because there was this echo effect where someone was doing, people started doing their emails at night and people started responding quicker and this whole thing sort of spun out of control. And Mm -hmm. so once they stepped back and said, well, let's just talk about it. Uh, do we need to be constantly connected and just opened up the dialogue, it became clear like, no, no one ever decided this was good. In fact, it has a lot of downsides. We can try something better. Yeah. And that's the way our whole society has evolved. And that's why so many people are asking these questions about how to reverse this this tide of of, um, being sort of drowning in the deluge of data that's coming at us all the time and, and be able to really focus 
on the things that matter when they matter. Yeah, and I think you know a good place to start is having uh, the the terminology right. And I think just by understanding that deep work, for example, is a specific type of effort that returns a lot of value for the company, just isolating it from other types of work is a great starting point mm-hmm. because now mm-hmm. you have a particular tool and you can say, what do I need to use to prioritize this tool and what's getting in the way of using this tool? And to me, it's a much more productive way to go forward than to just think about the distractions in our lives and struggling with whether the good outweighs the bad. Absolutely. And uh, I would love to have you come back, Cal, to talk more about the, the roots of this work, how you discovered these principles, and where you're applying these principles in your work. But I'm afraid uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us and for speaking about your uh, important new work with us. Well, thank you, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cal Newport, in which we talked about the four guidelines that he offers for being more effective in creating focus in your life. To work deeply, you've got to be serious about protecting time with rituals and routines that allow you to engage in deep work. To embrace boredom and its many wonders. To quit social media or at least cut down on it. You've got to be serious about reducing the distractions to enable focus. And it's possible to do that uh, with some experimentation and practice. And, and finally, to drain your shallows, as he calls it, meaning uh, to be careful about all of the non-deep work obligations are on your plate and eliminating some of them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest... And about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.